Oh, hey there. You're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music inside and out. My name is Noah. You probably know me as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and I make 12-tone. And today, we're going to be talking about what makes a great singer. And this is obviously a topic I've thought a lot about, because I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I actually am a singer. I have a degree in everything. I think the biggest distinction that I've made for a long time is the difference between a vocalist and a singer. And I guess how I would describe that is basically a vocalist is someone who has really good vocal technique, really good control of their vocal instrument. And that's things like range, like dynamics, being able to use different tones and resonances and all those different physical components to making your voice do what you want. Basically, a good vocalist is someone who can use their vocal instrument in a lot of different ways. Whereas a good singer is someone who can use it in at least one way that's worth listening to. And this is obviously, I think, a much more sort of subjective category. So this is someone who, like, I want to listen to and I enjoy listening to. And there's a lot of singers who I think are really good singers without having a lot of vocal technique. And, like, people, the obvious example I tend to use is Ian Anderson. He has fine vocal technique, but he's really doing one thing with his voice in most songs. I think one of my favorite go-tos is, though I would actually say that she is both a good vocalist and a good singer, but someone like Billie Holiday, where she actually doesn't have a lot of range. Yeah. Her range is a little over an octave, but I mean, the way that she is able to sing is just astounding. Like, she's able to do stuff that doesn't sound like the human voice. Like, she sounds like an ethereal, magical being. Yeah, and that I think... Obviously, that that highlights an important point in really any sort of serious discussion of people doing things is that everything works on multiple axes. You know, when we talk about like range, that's not like the defining feature of a good vocalist, even though like I think in a lot of cases, it's a really easy one to point to, right? I think it's one that in music circles, it gets kind of overhyped. I mean, a big range is impressive, like Mariah Carey, Freddie Mercury, like they're all very impressive. But I think that that's one that is overemphasized as quality of singer because it's very easy to understand and you don't really need to put much thought into it and it's very mathematically quantifiable what someone's range is. And that actually I want to highlight, again, this comes down to the distinction between a good singer and a good vocalist. I think that having a wide range is not a good indication of being a good singer at all. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who is like well-known, who has like, you know, is a really talented, technically proficient vocalist who I don't think is a very good singer. You know, the people I think of when I think of like great vocal technique are people like Beyonce. Yeah. Fantastic voice, would love listening to Beyonce sing. I think mostly people become well-known singers for being good singers more than for being good vocalists, but there are a lot of people who are really good vocalists. But like the examples I think of of people who have like really great technique but aren't really that interesting to listen to are mostly people I went to college with <laughs> who I kind of don't want to like dunk on specifically because it's not even a useful example. You won't know who they are because, you know, maybe they had like a really great range and like really, I mean, another another aspect of like good vocalist technique or whatever is like really precise pitch, not slurring around, just being able to like laser focus in and hit that note and do that, especially really fast runs. That sort of thing can be really impressive technically. And it can work or not. If you want an example of that, Ella Fitzgerald is absolutely incredible with like being able to do, specifically with being able to hit notes on fast runs. She's remarkable. Yeah. Which actually I think highlights, I think you and I have talked before about jazz. And one of the things that I've found is that jazz songs that I like most are mostly 
have singers who are not great vocalists. Yeah. I tend to attach myself much more to singers like Eddie Jefferson, who, you know, he's on the notes, he's doing fine, but he's, he's much more, he has this one tone and he's sort of like, it's a really distinctive tone. And that I think even outside of jazz, like across like genres, I tend to latch onto singers with really distinctive tones. People who I hear them and go like, oh, I know who that is. Again, I mentioned Ian Anderson. You know, Rob Zombie is another example. There's not really a lot of people who sound like Rob Zombie. I think there's a lot of people that, it's interesting. Distinctive tone is, I think, one of those very divisive things because I think there's a lot of people, like someone who I think is one of my favorite singers ever is Leonard Cohen. His tone is incredibly distinctive. But there's also all kinds of people who will tell you Leonard Cohen doesn't know how to sing. Yeah, you hear that when people, especially, I I know we've talked about Hallelujah on the podcast before, but when people talk about like other versions of Hallelujah, and it's just like, oh, well, yeah, it's that same great song that Leonard Cohen wrote, but with someone who actually knows how to sing. And it's like, no, Leonard Cohen knew how to sing Hallelujah. He had, and that's not to say like someone like Rufus Wainwright, Sorry, let me try that again. Just say Jeff Buckley. <laughs> that Jeff Buckley is easier to say. All right. Um, but that's not to say anyone who did these covers doesn't know how to sing, right? Yes. Like, yeah. But that that I think writing off Leonard Cohen as not knowing how to sing because he doesn't have this traditional soft tenor, pitch perfect, precise range thing going on in his voice, I think is missing what makes Leonard Cohen work as a singer. And I think that also actually speaks to something you've talked about a lot about how lyrics are not really that separable from the music. And part of the reason I think Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah is the best and part of the reason I love Leonard Cohen as a singer is Leonard Cohen sings in Leonard Cohen's lyrical voice. Yeah. That kind of sounds obvious, but it's something that I think is really important is the fact that like so many of Leonard Cohen's songs are these dark, brooding, heavy, like angst-filled songs. Yeah. And his voice is just so well-suited to that. Yeah, I mean, as we've talked about, like lyrics are definitely a part of music across the entire thing, but there's nowhere that's more obvious than in vocals, right? Because the vocals are singing them and the way you interpret words, even like getting down to like the way you sing vowels, like the was not a direction I was intending to go, but are you familiar with the band Coheed and Cambria? What band? Oh, Coheed and Coheed Cambria. And Cam- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like if you listen to them, the lead singer, Claudio Sanchez, he's like, he has this whole thing where it just like pronounces words weird. They're not like, as far as I can tell, like a consistent accent or anything. It's just like, he just lands on vowels in a way that's really distinctive and it works for what he's doing. And it sort of, creates this distancing almost or sort of like this not quite alien quality to it, but it's just like it almost sounds not quite the words. Another like on that was just making me think of like the entire genre of pop punk and how they do vowel <laughs> sounds in pop punk. Yep. <laughs> I think it's a, that this is a more kind of up for debate. I personally would not call Tom DeLonge a great singer, but I'm sure there are people that would, and I yeah. think that's valid. But yeah, that's another example of where, and I think a lot of that is, you'll see this generally in music scenes with all kinds of things, but with vocals, the exact same, where one vocal affectation kind of catches on and then an entire scene is around that. Like, I still think like most of like the new wave of British heavy metal is people doing Ian Gillian impressions, right? Like yeah. if you listen to <laughs> Child in Time, it's like that song invented 70s metal. 
Oh, absolutely. Metal in general is a great example of just like vocal affects catching on and becoming the sound. Yes. You know, there's certainly exceptions, but a lot of metal sort of comes down to like one of like three different scream techniques and a lot of metal singing anyway. And so, you know, you have a lot of things where like you have people putting their own spin on it or like singing it in different, doing it in different ranges. But you have these very recognizable sounds that tell you like, oh, this is someone whose vocals are influenced by Alexi Leho, for instance, or this is someone whose vocals are influenced by like Chuck Schuldiner. But yeah, no, you see these sort of like clear sort of vocal lineages sort of like Randy Blythe is another like, you know, not that Randy Blythe was the first person to be doing what Randy Blythe does either, but. And I think this like with these kind of scenes and affectations, it speaks so much to the thing where like, again, this might seem obvious, but there is no objectively good singer. I don't want Randy Blythe singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. You know, I mean, you don't <laughs> <laughs> just like I don't want Limp Biscuit performing behind blue eyes. <laughs> Look, I think a Lamb of God cover of Hallelujah could be really interesting. We're pivoting this entire podcast to talking about Lamb of God covering Hallelujah now. What's more interesting, like Lamb of God covering Hallelujah or like Leonard Cohen covering a Lamb of God song? Oh, God. Why not both? Why not have them just trade? Well, this has gotten completely derailed. So this is why singers are good. Yeah, yeah. I think the best singer is the right singer for the song. It's not a technically profound singer. It's not necessarily. And sometimes, I mean, something that I really, really attracts me to singers that is hard to quantify is an air of like showmanship. You know, even if you're just listening to a recording, that's something that I've always gotten Like, the ultimate example is Freddie Mercury. I always love David Bowie has a lot of showmanship in it. Like, there's a lot of artists who you can just hear them kind of, like, oozing charisma. And that's something that you can't really technically put a finger on. And that's something that changes depending on the genre. Like, someone like Bruce Dickinson has a lot of showmanship, but his showmanship is very different than Tom DeLonge's showmanship. And I mean, that sort of comes back to, again, sort of the vocalist versus singer distinction is that it is fundamentally a question of like objective qualities versus subjective qualities. And, you know, on the objective side, again, there's a lot of different axes. You can't just measure a range and then like do some Melodyne stuff to check pitch accuracy and be like, this person gets an 85.2 on the being a good vocalist scale. That's obviously not how it works. But when I'm talking about being a good vocalist, I am talking about these sorts of things that you can, you know, put numbers to and even if you can't put like exact numbers to it when you're talking about something like being able to use like different resonance chambers and like different tones, like you can sort of like quantify in a sense, like how many different ways you can use your voice. And that's really important if you're trying to work as like a session musician. I do think it's important to note here that even when it comes to that, it's not even really objective. It's applying a framework that in Western music is valued as a vocalist to it. Right? Like there, yeah, I, there are different vocal traditions that value different aspects on a technical level, or at least I imagine there are. I don't know enough, but I'm sure there are. One thing that I know for sure is that like what a good vocal tone is varies a lot. And so like there's, I want to say like Eastern European where like, or Eastern European traditional music where like a really nasal tone is 
the goal. Whereas like in a lot of like Western, especially Western popular music, if you look at like a lot of American popular music and stuff, you see like the mostly these really open sounds and they tend to be more sort of chest resonancy and trying to have that more open quality to them. And that's, if we hear like a super nasal, like pinched off tone, we go like, oh no, you're doing it wrong. That's bad. I don't like that. But obviously if that's the ideal for a different musical culture, it's going to work. I, but yeah, I do, again, I, I agree with you. And I think that's an important point And one that I guess is not, or is important to like keep a spotlight on that. This is all of this is going to be filtered through a set of cultural biases, no matter what you do. I think the point I'm trying to make is that like there are, whether or not we're assigning value to them, that's a cultural question, but there are sort of these measurable, measurable ish qualities, right? Yeah. And, you know, what a good range is, is varies by, like, culture varies by whatever as well. To sort of get back to the point that I was making, I think it can be easy when we're doing this to sort of say, like, oh, being a good singer is the thing that matters and being a good vocalist doesn't. And I don't think that's true either, right? Like, I think that, it, again, in many cases, like, people, you look at someone like Freddie Mercury, right? And yeah. Like, Freddie Mercury had great control over his vocal instrument. And he used that in ways that were really interesting, and so he had more options for being a good singer in more different ways than someone like Leonard Cohen would have. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he was better. Yes. But it means that he could convey a broader set of ideas with his voice. I agree with that. I don't think it's like a one-to-one. No. But I do think that a lot of the best singers are very good vocalists. There's a a correlation there. It's not necessarily, it's not like you need to be the best vocalist to be the best singer, but it sure helps a lot. Yeah, again, it gives you more range, like stylistic range and sort of emotional and dramatic range, not just like range range, but it gives you more options. And again, like like I was saying, it, it... Setting aside the question of, like, being a famous artist, it's really useful if you're a session musician, right? Like, you show up and they're like, hey, I want you to sing this, like, melody like a four-year-old child. And you better know how to do that or someone else is getting the gig. Yeah. It's very similar to how, like, someone like David Gilmour is not technically yeah. that great at the guitar, right? Like, like he probably yeah. wouldn't make a good session musician, but he makes a great Pink Floyd guitarist. I think it comes down to the difference between, you know, having your voice, which lets you just do whatever works for... I guess it comes down to the thing we've talked about a lot, which is, you know, like writing your own songs versus someone else writing them. And if you're writing your own song, someone like Leonard Cohen, you're saying like he sings in Leonard Cohen's lyrical voice. Yes. And that works for him, but he couldn't necessarily sing in, say, Neil Peart's lyrical voice. Yeah. Whereas Geddy Lee can. Yeah, 100%. Well, and I think something that I want to get to here, kind of, we touched on it a little bit, but I want to kind of come back to talking about unique vocal qualities because I think there's things where, like, I think something that is very popular for a lot of people that generally would not necessarily be considered, I don't think it's necessarily considered bad, but it's generally not considered good either, I don't think is like a raspy voice, right? Like your Janis Joplin, something like that, your Kurt Cobain, right? Like a lot of these vocalists, I think there's something that a lot of people really, really love about a raspy voice, or at the extreme end of the spectrum, your Tom Waits. Yeah, as like a trained metal singer, like... Yeah. One of the things that you see a lot whenever you're like showing off these is people who 
you know, may have taken like classical voice lessons or may have done nothing and are just assuming being like, oh, well, like, you know, it may sound cool, but it's, you know, it's not good for your voice. And that can be true. Like there are ways to do that wrong, but there are also ways to do it right. And if you do it right, it really doesn't hurt and it doesn't do that much damage. And so like you get this, I would argue that doing that effectively and doing that in a way that's comfortable is a sign of a good vocalist, is a sign of vocal control. Yeah. Whereas, you know, just like screaming and like tearing your vocal cords, like shredding your vocal cords is not, is is a bet sign of doing it wrong, but may still make you a really good singer. Like if you look at something like, you know, the Beatles' Twist and Shout, which they had to record at the end of the vocal session because George Martin was pretty sure John Lennon wouldn't be yeah. able to keep singing afterwards. And that's not great. You don't want that. That, or I think I think the go-to example for that is just so much punk rock, right? Like, yeah. so much punk rock is just shouting as loud as you can. Have you ever heard the story about the Beatles recording of Oh Darling? No. So apparently, this is a bit of a diversion, but again, actually, it kind of shows yeah. some of the practice of being a good singer, too. Apparently, Paul McCartney wanted the song to sound like he had been on tour for like months and was singing it, but the Beatles weren't touring anymore. So what he did was he went into the studio every day for a week and belted the song as hard as he could. And then at the end, he recorded this version that has this very like raspy, torn, kind of like desperate sound to it. And I think that that shows a kind of intentionality to that. And I think that's a key part of being a good singer too, is not just being able to have these different sounds, but being able to acknowledge and identify when you want to be using them, I think is a really, really important aspect. And I think that that's something that is often overlooked. Like I think a lot of the time, the average listener doesn't really think about how much thought goes into how you sing something. I think there's something about, I think where it's easy to imagine, oh, well, they just know how to sing and they just go up and stand up at the mic and sing the notes. But in reality, there's a lot of thought and effort that goes into making these kinds of vocal decisions. Yeah, although as someone who has spent years of their life studying vocal technique, that story also kind of scares me. <laughs> like, I hear that and I was like, that's how you get vocal nodes. Yeah. And those don't go away. Those are permanent. And you can get them from like one bad performance if you do bad enough. Like, so like when I hear things like that or I hear like the Les Mis movie, I know Sideways made a video about this. And Hugh Jackman to get that like look really skinny, emaciated look that he wanted for like the character, just like didn't drink water. Oh, that's just healthy. like purposely dehydrated himself and then tried to sing. And like I hear that and just like I feel my vocal cords just like wrinkling in like sympathy and just like and so I will say, like, if you if you want to sound desperate and if you want to sound like raspy and everything. There are ways to do that that are safe. Yeah. There are better ways to do that than just screaming in a studio for a week. It's it's a great story. It shows a lot of commitment. But like as someone whose professional ambition, at least at one point, was to be a vocal technique teacher, please don't do that. Just just I also think this is why you see a lot of rock star singers like flame out, you know, yeah. and just like can't really perform the songs they used to because a lot of them a a lot of them are untrained and don't know the techniques and stuff and b a lot of them also just don't really take care of their voice you know like they and if you're lemmy that works but if you're not lemmy it might not work in the same way 
Yeah, I know. I've heard like stories of like metal singers just like smoking a pack of cigarettes specifically to get their voice super gravelly for a show. <laughs> and yeah, that might work in the short term, but like, you know, there are better ways to accomplish that effect. The human voice is ridiculously flexible if you know how to use it. If you don't know how to use it, it can be really easy to destroy forever. And that, again, I think it's not to take away from how cool some of these things sound. That's just like, you know, hall monitor Corey dropping in, just being like, take care of yourself, though. Drink water. Don't like smoke if you're going to be singing. Probably don't smoke anyway. But I'm like, I think an example of a vocalist who completely destroyed his voice that I, in general, I'm not going to get through this episode without talking about Bob Dylan as a vocalist because I'm so interested in him as a vocalist. Because if you listen to his stuff now, I don't think it's bad, but you can hear his voice is completely shot. But I think there's this perspective that Bob Dylan could never sing or that he just happened to have this like whiny nasal voice. But when you know Bob Dylan's entire career, you actually know that that is an affectation that he was very specifically and decisively like using. Like a lot of his stuff is kind of like, I mean, you listen to something like the Nashville Skyline album and he's doing a country croon. Like, he's doing a deeper country croon, and it's this really warm, not-so-nasal voice. Like, a lot of his vocal decisions are abnormal, but they're decisions that he made, and you can actually see where he got them from. If you know, like, a lot of his influence is in traditional folk songs and, like, Appalachian folk songs and things like that, and... The kind of high nasal thing is a lot more common in those. And when you listen to like old, like Alan Lomax field recordings and stuff like that, you'll hear people singing a lot like Bob Dylan. Like, it's not like he's just this whiny nasal guy. His voice is actually really, really interesting. And he makes a lot of decisions. I talk about this in my Tangled Up in Blue video. And these are the sorts of decisions that end up frying your voice, where Tangled Up in Blue, that song, he actually, like, he experimented with it in a couple different keys, and the final studio version is actually just barely on the edge of his range, and he's singing just at the edge of his vocal range through that song, and it gives this kind of desperation that, again, is a very deliberate move. Yeah, and again, comes back to, I think, the thing you were saying earlier about sort of like different cultural ideals of what a good voice sounds like. And as with so many things in modern musical discourse, we've sort of like settled on one idea that is largely based on the classical tradition and also not really reflective of most of the music we listen to. Yes, There's a specific classical voice, sort of the bel canto style singing that is like, I don't think is what most people think of when they think of a good singer these days. I don't think right away people think of that, but it's still a cultural shorthand we use. Like think of like the ending of Step Brothers, right? Yeah. Like I remember back in school, one of my like teachers sort of like shorthand referred to like the basic, you know, projective chest voice that you were going for like with no effect or whatever as opera man voice. Yeah. Which, you know, is a useful way to think about it because it sort of has that quality to it. And there's, you know, when we get into like, you know, where you're leaning vowels in the mouth and blah, 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 and palate stuff. And that's a whole complicated set of whatevers that I don't remember well enough from college (laughs) to go in depth on. But like that sort of thing, there are differences to be drawn between sort of traditional like 
opera singing and what we think of as a good like rock singer. If everyone closes their eyes for a second now and thinks of a good singer, it'll be rooted in a very specific musical tradition. And like what you think of and what I think of when we think of a good singer might be slightly different, but chances are because we live in the same musical culture, we'll probably have a lot of these same values that are not necessarily universal traits of a good singer. Yeah, and that obviously gets amplified a lot in like vocal programs and when you're hanging out with people who do a lot of singing stuff. And it got to the point, honestly, in college where like I kind of just resented any famous singer who had really good technique. Like it got to the point where like I wasn't even like kind of got bored of Queen. Not because Freddie Mercury was bad at using his voice, but because it just got to the point... Again, this sort of comes back to a thing we've talked about a lot, which is sort of like learning how to listen to specific things. And what I was hearing was sort of the way that my friends were listening to it and talking about it, which was like, oh my God, listen to how high that note is. And then he goes down to the super low note and he has all this dynamic control and he's shifting through different resonances and everything. And it's just like, okay, but none of that matters to me. And it was similar, like, it took me a long time because I had never really like listened to Soundgarden or anything before I went to college. That was a band that I got into around that time. But for a while, I just, I really did not understand why anyone was interested in Chris Cornell. They would be like, oh, he's like, he's such a great rock vocalist. And I was like, would listen and be like, yeah, he's singing really high. And that level of being like, oh, look at how cool this technique is and approaching it through that lens made it hard for me to really appreciate that there were other things going on that I did enjoy and that I eventually did come around to. But, you know, it sort of, because he was such a good vocalist, it made it hard for me to appreciate him as a singer for a while, if that makes sense. If that doesn't sound like ridiculously petty. Yeah. No, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think like I'm similar and like, I do love Freddie Mercury. Like it's a pleasure to listen to him sing, but I'm more drawn to distinctive singers And some of that is technique. Some of that is just the voice that you're born with. Like one of my all-time favorite singers is Nina Simone. And she is a classically trained, she is an incredible singer. But a lot of that just has to do with the fact that she just has a very, very unique voice. Yeah, I mean, I I will say, I, I do think Freddie is a fairly distinctive voice as well. Yes. But I think Freddie is a distinctive voice who has been like... His specific kinds of distinction, like who he is, has been held up so high in the culture for so long. Rightly so. Like, I'm not, like, dunking on Freddie here. He's phenomenal, but he's been held up so high for so long that he's almost lost some of the novelty of what makes him distinct, you know? Because everybody just knows Freddie Mercury now. Yeah, it's just like... Freddie Mercury's voice is a genre of voice, even though only one person. Yes, yes, exactly. I think that ties into like a thought that I was starting to have, and we'll see if it leads anywhere interesting. But one thing that I've sort of have found with like vocalists is like, I'm a baritone. And so a lot of rock singers are tenors, right? Yeah. They'll tend to sit a little bit higher. They'll tend to like really, a lot of those songs will sort of go up to that like, a4 in that area and that's right where my break is and like that to like g that area is like was really hard for me to sing and took a lot of work to get to anything plausible i I honestly like still struggled with it (laughs) but like trying to get into that range like when i was would like sing along with songs i was listening to like most people around me would have a much easier time singing along than i would 
if they were singing in tune. Like, obviously, like, if you're with people who don't know how to sing in tune, then, you know, they're not going to hit the notes anyway. But, like, when I was hanging out with singers, certainly, or like or musicians, they would be hitting these notes a lot easier, even if they weren't singers, like people who were guitarists or bassists. And so, like, I wound up sort of shying away for that reason, I think, partly from those sort of, like, really traditional-sounding voices, because those traditional voices tended to be tenors. And I was drawn more to people who may not have had that range, who may have sort of sat in a different area. And a lot of times that's where you would find distinctive voices, especially in rock, because that's just not the default rock range. And so the people who still sort of like did something interesting with it were people who could do something else besides hit that high A and people who could give you something besides the range to sort of latch onto. Again, Ian Anderson is like always the voice that comes to mind when I think of like weird voices that I love because he just, he sounds so good. But he also sounds so much like Ian Anderson. And I, I don't know if he's like a baritone or where, but like he doesn't tend to sing out of my range. And so I think that might also be part of why I latched onto him was it was just like, oh, here's someone that I can sing along to and also do fun things with my voice while I'm trying to imitate. Yeah, well, and I think when you're talking about like part of what's interesting about Nina Simone is that she sits so much, she sits lower than most female singers, right? Like there is definitely something yeah. about people whose ranges and like on a similar level, like I, in general, something that has always, like I've always really loved in voices is androgyny one way or another. Like I love male singers who sing like a really good falsetto and sing in high voices like I love Justin Timberlake as a singer I think he's a phenomenal singer and part of the reason is because of again because the Justin Timberlake thing kind of became pretty popular in pop for a while but I think he's pretty kind of singular in it and he's phenomenal because of it I think there's something there's something very interesting and this does not mean your voice can't be interesting if you're a male tenor. There's lots of tenors with great, interesting voices. And I don't I don't think this is a unique opinion. Like, I think a lot of people really value novelty in a voice, right? Like, that's one of the really cool things about singing is, like, yes, other instruments, depending on, like, the instrument you play and like how you kind of like if it's a guitar what pedals you run it through or if it's a trumpet like what techniques you use or stuff there are these differences of voicings and timbre that you can get but there's something really powerful about the uniqueness of an individual's voice it's very cool it's very different the way that everyone does very much have like this intrinsic uniqueness to their voice yeah it's it's interesting that you say that it would be a pretty common opinion because I don't think you're wrong. I'm never wrong. Well, that's true. But the fact that we're, like, to, like, we're still talking about Bob Dylan as a culture indicates that we're at least okay with like interesting voices. Yeah. And again, this, this sort of comes down to the question of like having a stated ideal that may or may not match your actual aesthetic preference, which is a whole complicated can of worms that I don't know that I can speak all that authoritatively on. Although that's certainly not going to stop me from trying. I think more often than not, again, like we were saying, there's this ideal of a quote unquote good singer. And you will often see, again, we were talking about like, oh, Leonard Cohen doesn't know how to sing. Yeah. Like these ideas where people will just like have this idea of what a singer is. And then from there sort of reject out of hand people who don't fit that mold of a good singer, even if 
what they're doing works for what they're doing. You hear this a lot, again, when we're talking about punk, like, yeah. people will, like, often be like, oh, yeah, punk singers don't know how to sing. They, they sound terrible. And it's like, well, I mean, they're mostly not great vocalists, but they sound great for what they're doing. Yeah. A lot of the time. Not always. You know, there are quite a few punk bands. I'm not endorsing every single one of their singers, but... Hot take. Like, you have... <laughs> some punk singers are bad. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, I think, in my experience, maybe this is partly because I have spent time in a vocal program at a music school, and so my experience is colored by that, and maybe yours more accurately represents the vast majority of people who haven't done that. So I don't know. It's interesting to me to hear that described as a common opinion because that's sort of not my instinctive understanding of what common opinions are on the subject. I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people like, they kind of like novelty within a certain framework, you know? Yeah. It's not like they like sheer novelty. They like kind of like novelty within this familiar framework. And I think Dylan is a challenging vocalist because he kind of exists outside of that framework. But again, I can't stress this enough. Bob Dylan is one of my top five favorite singers, like ever, if you put a gun to my head. He's, also if you don't, he still is. But he's- Don't, please. I need to host more podcasts with Noah. If you listen to something like Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, or It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, or things like that, like he has this very unique quality to his voice. And I think because it doesn't really- Fit. But something that happens with people like, you know, Dylan or Cohen or someone like that is people grow up hearing, oh, this person can't sing. So then when yeah. they hear his songs, they listen for somebody that can't sing. You know, their brain is primed to dislike it and not really primed and primed to be like, oh, well, I'm going to listen for the lyrics, but I don't really like value him as a vocalist. Your brain is just primed against that. But in reality, like, if you go in uh, listening, and similar to punk, a lot of people are kind of primed into being like, yeah, well, you're just you're just there for kind of, like, the emotion, not because they're, like, a good singer. But, I mean, like, if you listen yeah. to Jello Biafra, that dude can sing in a very weird, very unique, <laughs> very distinctive way, but don't tell me that man can't sing. <laughs> yeah, and also, like, this is slightly off the topic of, like, singing, but we're talking about punk you see a lot of that in terms of like people like talking about playing instruments too. And it's like, oh, yeah. well, they're, they're not like good at their instruments. They're just playing them real loud and fast. And like, if you look at a lot of the major punk bands, they're actually pretty good at their instruments. Like, I mean, it turns out that like when you spend your entire life playing an instrument and that's yeah. your livelihood, it's hard to be that bad at it. Yeah. It's just like a lot of that is sort of like, not necessarily like point by point a conscious decision, right? They're not like, oh, I'm going to be a little bit like accelerate here, miss the beat here or whatever. But it's just like, there's a sort of a conscious sloppiness that's very different from like unconscious sloppiness. Yeah. Like when I listen to people who don't know how to play guitar very well, they don't sound like punk guitarists. Yeah. And in much the same way, like I, as someone who's like, I worked as a vocal teacher for kids. Like I've like, you know, have like have had friends and family members who are not great singers. And like, it's very different the way that people who genuinely do not know how to sing, sing <laughs> from the way someone who, quote, doesn't know how to sing, unquote, like Bob Dylan, right? Like there's very specific ways in which he doesn't, quote, unquote, know how to sing. So then, because I feel like it's not a Ghost Notes episode if we don't bring up the shags at this point, where do you put the, yep. <laughs> uh, the singing of the shags in there? 
I think the thing about the shags is that like, I mean, they're not hitting the same exact notes as the guitar because there's all sorts of weird tuning stuff in this, but like, it's very clear that there's a shape to the melody. It's very clear that there's sort of an intentionality to the melody in a way that again, indicates that they are thinking about and understand how to think about using their vocal instrument, even if much like all their other instruments, like they're not actually quite in line with how those things actually work. That was a very non-committal answer. Ghost Notes is all about non-committal answers. <laughs> it's a hard question because like, you know, like the, the shags complicate a lot of discussions about music when yeah. you bring them up. Like I love them. They do make a lot of musical discussions hard because it's just like, it's so weird and so out there. And again, this sort of almost comes back to that sort of cultural values question. Like, a lot of what made the Shags so weird was that their father didn't let them listen to popular music. Like, they developed this idea of what music was sort of on their own as their own sort of like microculture with these instruments and just figuring out what to do with them. And so it's hard to separate the fact that like they weren't even trying to sound like someone like I don't know, Frank Sinatra or even like someone like Janis Joplin or whatever. They were yeah. just trying to figure out what they were trying to sound like at all. I don't really know where to place them. But again, I do think that there's a quality to them that's very special. Yeah. And that makes them good singers in my books. Yeah, I, I like listening to the Shags sing. Yeah. like Another aspect that I wanted to touch on, because I think it's an underrated thing with singing, especially if you're listening to like a recorded singer, if you're not listening to something live, and often if you are, like most of the time actually these days, if you are listening to something live, a very important and often overlooked part of a singer is actually their ability to use the microphone. Yeah. I mean, a great example of this is Frank Sinatra was a master at understanding how his voice sounded on mic. Like, he knew how the mics of the era made him sing and used them to his advantage. But I think that's something where, like, a lot of the time when we think of recordings of vocals, we kind of think of, oh, well, that's just them in a vacuum. But in reality what microphone you're singing into, how you're holding the mic, your distance to the mic, how it's mixed. There's a whole yeah. lot of these things that really go into what makes a vocalist. Yeah, there's all sorts of mic technique. But again, like there's, as you sort of touched on briefly, there's also like production and mixing stuff, right? Like a voice with compression sounds very different from a voice without compression. Yes. And a voice with pitch correction sounds very different from a voice without pitch correction. And so... You can hear these things on recordings that are just like sound phenomenal, but aren't necessarily a thing that that singer or theoretically any singer could do with their voice. And that's that's not to say they're bad, right? Like, I think that it's very easy from there to sort of go down like the, oh, isn't it a shame that like modern technology has made it so singers don't even try anymore? And that's a very boring attitude. Like, that's just not an interesting argument. That attitude is akin to like looking at a guitarist who uses a pedal board and saying, oh, look, yeah. this guitarist isn't really playing his instrument. He's just running it through a bunch of computers. Well, I would say it's even it's looking at a guitarist who uses a tuner. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like using technology to make sure that your thing makes the notes you want it to make. But like also on the mic technique thing, I think 
again, coming back to the, like being a metal singer, like at college, like the, you know, like the classic metal singer, like grip on a mic where you sort of like wrap your hand around the ball. Yeah. Like that sounds like hot garbage. It looks great. <laughs> Mixing engineers, sound engineers, they hate you when you do that. That was like a whole thing at like school where like the teachers were just like, okay, so don't do that. And like one of my teachers gave me this hack where like, in order to look like you're doing that, but still not really block a lot of the sound, you can sort of put like one finger around the top, like your index huh. finger, and then like sort of rest that on your upper lip. And then it looks like you're sort of barreling down on the mic, but it still has all of this open, like the grill is largely uncovered. And so if, if anyone out there is a metal singer who's looking for like techniques to look cool with your mic without ruining your sound, that's one. But if you do do that barreling down thing, like it does have a significant impact and it makes the mic sound really different. And, you know, that might be what you're going for. And if you do it intentionally, like that's fine. But well, again, depending on your sound engineer, if you're friends with them and you like, you know, they'll be cool with it. It's fine. If you're playing a random club with like their own engineer, don't do that or they probably won't invite you back. As someone who is kind of like a trained vocalist, you have so much kind of like a trained vocalist that you are a trained vocalist. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) Very similar. (laughs) Do you have any other insights on like mic technique or any thoughts on that? Because I personally think it's such an underrated aspect of singing that is very real. And if you listen to music that has been recorded, you are listening to somebody on a mic. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a difference between studio mics and performance mics. I did do some studio classes. Most of those, you just sort of like stand, put your face not that far from the pop filter. Yeah. And. Hey, I do that too. Just sort of go. But like for performance stuff, I think where you're dealing with like dynamic mics, it's a lot more complicated. It, especially like you were saying in terms of like angle. Yeah. It sounds very different if you're sort of pointing it directly at your mouth instead of just like singing across it. And those are both fine, but you like you have to be careful of which one you're doing. And if you keep switching back and forth, your engineer is going to be mad. Like another thing that like I remember, because like for a while, one of the things that I did was I would sit in on performance classes with a teacher that I was sort of unofficially TAing for. And like it was a performance class. And so I wound up just like running the soundboard because they mostly like would have an engineer come in at the beginning and like make sure that it was set to decent levels, but then they just leave because yeah. they only had so many engineers working there. And so I would just like run and make like minor adjustments. And so like one thing that like always drove me crazy was the way vocalists who weren't thinking about it would sing the letter S. Oh, th- uh, would they get a lot of sibilance? Yeah, yeah, like S- I'm so sorry to whoever's editing this, <laughs> but you get that like hiss that comes at like the end. And so like, like multiple times, like I would, I would have to like cut the highs a lot to try and get that down and like make it not like destroying my eardrums. This isn't directly a mic technique thing, but it's related to the way your voice interacts with a mic. It's often good if you're singing and you have this S sound to sort of like soften it to a Z. Huh. Cause you can play around a lot with this, the way you're with like letters and specific like consonants and vowels uh, and get the word across. The famous example, I think, is the in sync. It's going to be May. Yeah. And the reason that happens is because E is the most closed vowel. And so when you go up to a high note, that, that, that one's not that high. But, you know, you hear this. God, what, there was a Foo Fighters song that I remember we had to do where he just hits like a super, like I think it's like on like B flat four or something. He just hits like and sings like a really closed E. 
And it was just like, it was the hardest thing to figure out how to do. And what we learned mostly is when you go up at all high and singing E, you just, you just round it out to an A. Huh. And people will fill in the word that they want to hear. And so you can play around a lot with sort of what vowels and what consonants you use in order to make it sound as good as possible with your voice and with the mic without really losing any coherence. Although, again, you get to people like Claudio Sanchez, Coheed, and Cambria who are just like choosing such weird vowels, often like not in ways that make vocal technique sense. That's just like it becomes a stylistic thing as well. If you want a singer to listen to who like changes vowels specifically in that way a lot, Hosier does that a lot. Like, he's very good at it to, you know, changing the vowels to reach higher notes. Not the Claudio Sanchez weird things. He's very good at changing the vowels. Although, to be clear, I love Claudio Sanchez. I think he's a great singer. But (laughs) But yeah, listen for that in Hosier. It's something that happens a fair bit. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's not directly a mic technique thing. I think the main mic technique thing is, like, you can be too close. I think that that's a thing people often don't realize. And so like, you, you often want to keep like a little bit of room between. What that room is depends on so many factors that I'm not even going to give you like a couple fingers width or something should be fine. But you want to try and not be like right up on it because then you get like really, really bassy. And that can be, you know, if you want that, if you want like that, that rich, warm, whatever, like you sort of pull in for like a bit to get that line and to get that effect on that line and that works. But like, it often overall will sound better if you give yourself just a little room. But obviously, like you see singers like holding it like a foot away from their face, and it's like that's gonna bleed so much. Like <laughs> this is gonna sound like there's like a guitar amp behind you, there's a drummer behind you. Yeah. Put the mic closer to your face. <laughs> also, never point it at the monitors. That's a thing that oh, yeah. shouldn't need to be said, but like please never point your microphones anywhere near the monitors. Unless you're Steve Reich. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's different. <laughs> Were there any other singing topics you wanted to touch on? I wanted to take like one more second to just like dunk on Bel Canto as a vocal theory, but I think <laughs> yeah, I don't really no, have any specific ahead. observations. I just want to say that like this idea, actually, you know, there, there is one related to that 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 reminds me of. It is relevant to the time that we're recording this, although slightly less so by the time it comes out. But as of recording, Bismarck, he has recently passed away. R.I.P. And I think that, if you look at, like, You Got What I Need, like, it's such a good example of how a voice that is in every single way not, quote-unquote, singing correctly yeah. can work perfectly. Because, like, that that off-key thing, it sort of has this, like, it's like oozing charisma, and it has this, like, desperation to it, but also this sort of, like, playfulness. It just works. There's this charm to it, right? Like, it's just, it's hard not to like it. <laughs> the song is called Just a Friend, isn't it? I said it was yeah, uh, what I yeah. need, but it's called Just a Friend. Anyway, whoops. But yeah, you know the song. And it's just like, it's so, such a good example of a singer who like, I don't know if Bismarck he can normally sing in the traditional good way. But if he can sort of do more of that sort of traditional, like... To use our language that we established, you don't know if he's a good vocalist. Exactly, yeah. I don't know if this is a thing he could have chosen not to do. But I think that whether it was a conscious decision or whether it was just the tools he had, I think it worked for what he was doing. And I think it's a really good example of how you can do none of the officially correct things and still sound great if the thing you're doing lines up with the things you're saying and the story you're telling. 
Yeah, I think that that is a perfect example of what we're talking about. And I'm mad that you thought of it, not me. (laughs) Sorry. So one quick, short, you know, easy question. Is rapping singing? Um. Yes and no. Yeah. I know you have. I mean, we could do a whole episode on this. You have a lot of things. Your video on Kendrick's tonality is phenomenal. Or maybe you were tweeting about Kendrick. I have tweeted about Kendrick. I did a video about clipping. It was probably tweeting about Kendrick then. Maybe it wasn't a video. It's a complicated question. And sort of my general stance is that from what I've seen, a lot of rappers don't describe themselves as singers. Yeah. And they view what they do as a separate musical, but separate sort of style of vocalization. Yeah. And... So from that, from having seen that that tends to be, in my experience, how rappers talk about their work most of the time, more often than not, I'm more on the side of like leaning towards self-determination in this particular topic and just saying like, okay, so basically I would say I don't think rapping is singing. I think it's music to be clear. Yes. Yeah. To be clear. Yeah. Yeah. That just, just in case this could possibly come across as sounding like I was saying anything else. I believe rap is music. I believe hip hop is music. I don't think most rappers would describe themselves as singers. And I think that that is a reasonable enough reason to view rap as a separate thing from singing, even though it is also a form of musical vocalization. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting loaded question that's very fun to drop at you with a minute left in an episode. It's not that loaded once you separate the idea of singing from music, but it's still, you know, it's one where you have to word the answer really carefully to avoid sounding like you're saying something really bad that you're not. So thanks for ambushing me with that. I also think it's one of these very interesting things where, again, not to dig too deep into this. I mean, I would love to just have an episode where we talk about rapping someday as a medium and as an art, similar to how we're talking about singing now and as a technique, but... I think what's complicated, too, is there will be points where, like, in the middle of a rap verse, someone will sing and then go back to yeah. rapping. And and not not just, like, cutting to the chorus and singing, but, like, rappers will s- sometimes sing lines in the middle of rapping and things like that, which is, it's very interesting and very convoluted. There's some rappers who do that for, like, Nelly is a great example of someone who's, like, you can read most of Nelly's stuff as singing. Yeah. But like he tends to describe it as rapping. Yeah. And so, and then you look at someone like T-Pain, like his rapper turned singer. And so, yeah, you know, you have these, there's a blurry line again, because they're both sort of styles of musical vocalization. Again, this, this is a topic that like is very, very deep and probably not, I don't know that we can do it justice now probably deserves, like you said, an entire discussion. But again, like this is a thing I would recommend for anyone curious about this. I did do a video on pitch and rap and the different ways that it's used that. Yeah, maybe that's the one I'm thinking of pitch and rap. Yeah. Yeah. That one was the one about clipping. But yeah, where you sort of you have different ways of using pitch ranges in your voice that may not like be singing but still have melodic impacts because you know you when we think about rap we, we may talk about it as like a kind of speaking that's a way oversimplified but you know it is in some ways analogous to speech but like even speech 
has a lot of melodic qualities to it. Like when I just said qualities, my voice went up. Yeah. And when I said up, it did too. I don't know that I have any more additional insight to add here beyond just like if, go watch my video on pitch and rap if you're curious about this. There is a lot going on there that doesn't tend to get credited because we tend to just think of rap as a rhythmic delivery Yeah, when it's just not. There's a lot of rhythm to it, but there's also pitch and there's also yeah. not like formalized like note for note precise melodies necessarily. Although there is like you can put a lot of like if you can isolate the vocal like a rap vocal, you can run it through like Melodyne and you'll get notes. And that can often be useful. You can see sort of like over the course of a verse, someone's pitch might rise as it gets a little more insistent. And that may not be again, like, I don't know. I think that's a great point. And I, it was just too fun to drop yeah, this no, on you no, 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 no. before the end. I agree. I think rapping is a different technique than singing. But once again, that does not make it any lesser. That does not mean it's not music. It's very yeah. much music. Guitars are different from violins. Yes, but. exactly. Yeah. Or even like playing flamenco guitar is different than shredding. Yeah. Or is different than playing punk, because flamenco and shredding are actually closer to each other. Yeah, yeah, now, now that you say it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, electric versus acoustic guitar. Yeah, was, you know, yeah. Analogies are hard. Analogies are hard. Music is good. Being a good vocalist is not necessarily the same as being a good singer. Being a good vocalist is still something to celebrate, though, and being a good singer is something to celebrate. I think that a point that you made pretty early on and then we kept talking anyway but it was a good point is that you know there there is a correlation right like yeah a lot of people who are great vocalists also know how to do really interesting stuff as singers but also a lot of people who are great singers may not necessarily know how to do a lot of interesting vocal stuff and they may not need to because it may not be necessary for what they're doing is i think the thesis of this episode but like i think so over explained in an unnecessarily convoluted way. That's the Ghost Notes special. Welcome to Ghost Notes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Yeah, you know where to find us. <laughs> yeah. Bye. www.theinternet.org eh. slash if you want. <laughs> Ghost Notes. <laughs> 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 all right, well, thank you all so much for listening. I know we got a little rambly on this episode, which we've never yeah. done before. No. We're trying out a new thing where we don't prepare and then we just start talking and we see what happens. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave it. All that I'm going to say is Bob Dylan is a good singer and you should go listen to him and appreciate him for his vocal talents because I think you're missing out. All right. Not you specifically, Corey, the, well, the wider oh. you. Oh no, I can't <laughs> listen to Bob Dylan? No, you're not allowed. Right. No more Bob Dylan for me. All right, I think I think we can end the longest outro ever. Bye, everyone.